The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Please stand with me as I read God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. Well, as you just heard, we're here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Our sermon title this morning is Once for All. And the reason why we're using that is because it's just found right there in verse 10, pops up again in verses 12 and 14. The author is now going to make a press for us to grasp the realities of the once-for-all nature of the sin-forgiving sacrifice of Jesus. What has the author been talking about now for multiple weeks and months for us, but ever since chapter 5, he has been talking about Jesus, the better high priest, who offered the better blood of a better sacrifice in a better tabernacle, so that we might have the better covenant. What better covenant? It's the better covenant that we just read there in verses 16 and 17. A covenant where our hearts are truly transformed. A covenant where God says to those whom he has saved, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. This is the better of Jesus that we find. And so, our main idea this morning is the author makes one last final push to drive these truths into our minds is this. He's wanting us to see that eternal salvation, salvation that is forever, it rests on something. 
It rests on the once-for-all, finished, sin-forgiving sacrifice of Jesus. You're going to see these phrases pop up over and again. You're going to see that the sacrifice of Jesus was once-for-all. It is truly finished, and it actually brings about forgiveness of sin. Once-for-all. All. That's the reality that the author is pressing before us. Because what you need to know is as we roll into next week and continue through the end of Hebrews, the time for sort of like that official teaching is done. He's now going to roll into the realities where he's going to say, because of these ten and a half chapters of truth about how Jesus is better, he's going to round the corner and get uber practical about what that means in our daily pursuit of this of this great high priest, okay? So let's pray. Let's ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to use this time in his word so that we would not just be hearers of the word only, but that we would leave this place as doers of the word as well, okay? So let's pray. Father, we are going to come before you this morning and magnify your name in such a way where we put the spotlight on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so my desire, my prayer, my petition that I'm lifting to you is that you would make my speech and you would make my message this morning to not just simply be a speech, a message that amounts to just merely plausible words of wisdom. But that as I speak, as I explain as I expose us to the truths centered on Jesus Christ himself and get us wet with the water of your word, that you would make this message, you would make these words to be a full-blown demonstration of the Holy Spirit and his power so that our faith would not rest in just the mere wisdom of men, but that our faith would come to rest in the power of God himself, Christ, who is better. Jesus, do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Hear our prayers as we lift them to you. It's in your name, Sovereign King, that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've ever listened to any, any good orchestral music, like you've gone to the symphony and you actually heard a conductor who knows what they're doing, who's written a phenomenal piece of music, or whether it's some sort of classical form of music you like listening to, what you would know is this, is that one way a conductor will capture the imagination of his audience is by weaving musical themes together throughout the music. For those who have discerning ears, what makes a good piece of orchestral music, like actually like good, legit music, is that it's got some story to tell. There's some sort of theme that just keeps popping up its head and fading out, and something new will show up, and then he'll swing back around, he'll grab that minor theme, and he'll, he'll pull it forward, and he'll introduce yet something else new, only to turn around and go back to that theme he introduced at the beginning, and then grab that little minor theme, pull it forward, and, and turn it into a major theme, and what? he's doing is that conductor is weaving a beautiful tapestry of music capturing our imagination by by the mean of these themes well if you want to take that reality and overlay it on top of this letter written to the hebrews what you could say is that like a piece of music chapter 10 right here these verses in chapter 10 are truly a culmination of themes that our author-conductor 
has been introducing to us ever since Hebrews chapter 1 in that opening section where he comes firing out of the gate saying, Jesus is better in this way, Jesus is better in this way, Jesus is better in this way. He does it seven times over, and it's almost like a little table of contents there in the opening verses where he then grabs those truths and then begins to weave these themes over and over again. One shows up, one fades back, he circles back and he grabs one and pulls it forward, and what you need to know is that right now in these 18 verses what we have is truly the crescendo the crescendo the high note as the author lays before us this beautiful exquisite composition of Christ exalting beauty and what you need to know is that for his crescendo our author is going out on the high note of Christ's once for all Christ's full and final sin-forgiving sacrifice. What should have happened when we were reading these verses, when Don was reading them to this, you should have been saying this. These words sound extremely familiar. And that's because they are extremely familiar. Like, there was nothing new introduced to us in these 18 verses in Hebrews chapter 10. Why? Because he's simply going back and grabbing all these minor themes that he's been introducing to us, and he's now grabbing them and funneling them before us. But just because he's not introducing something new to us, per se, what he is doing is he's putting a spotlight on a particular aspect of these minor themes, and he's going to major on the once-for-allness of Jesus' sacrifice, the finished reality that there is truly sin forgiveness found in this high priest. So when you turn to the first 10 verses, what you do is you come upon the first point where the author is going to focus our attention one more time on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus. So just look at verse 1. Look at how he begins to roll this this out before us. He says, he writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, he's used that language before, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, that is the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Once again, the author wants us to think about the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament sacrifices. He's just putting that before us once again. He says the law with all of its stipulations about priesthoods and tabernacles, sacrifices and covenant, what you just need to know is that all of these are just but a shadow of the good things to come. Now, all these stipulations that the author is referring to, all these stipulations of the law, what he's not saying is these things are bad. And the reason why he's not saying that all these things are bad in and of themselves is because, after all, they were designed by God and put into place by him. But what gets lost over time and what did get lost over time in regard to these people in whom he was writing to is that these shadows that were put in place to point a people forward to the salvation that they need from God, guess what? People began to hold and cling to these shadows and the performance and the doings of these shadows in an attempt to earn that salvation from God. In other words, what the author is addressing right now is he's recognizing that people did then what folks tend to do today. And what is that? They cling to the shadows. 
in an attempt and in a hope to earn salvation from God. People today do what people did then in that they seek to trust in good works, being moral, performance-driven salvation, trusting that when I stand before God on that day, hopefully it'll be more good in the good column and a little less bad in the bad column because there's more good in the good and less bad in the bad, God's going to be good with me. That bent of the heart is not unique to our situation today because that's exactly the thing that the author is addressing to these Hebrew Christians of the first century, referencing it all the way back to the Old Testament worshipers who would have first received these laws with all these stipulations. What was meant to be a picture of, hey, wake up, you need a Savior, became, I'm going to do these things and attempt to save myself. And so the author is looking at these men and women, saying, don't go back to this. Because he says there in verse 3, the aim is that in offering the same sacrifices continually every year, a worshiper would somehow begin to draw the conclusion that these offerings of animals, they cannot be the final thing that they're going to trust in for the forgiveness of sin. After all, he says, if sacrifices of animals could truly cleanse the sin-laden conscience then wouldn't these sacrifices, he says there in verse 2, wouldn't these sacrifices have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed by sacrificing that animal the very first time, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But the thing is, that never happened. That's what he's been saying over and over again for the past several chapters. You would show up at the tabernacle, you would obey God, you would sacrifice the animal, its blood would be poured out, its life was given in your place, then you'd turn around and go home and go, you know what, internally, deep down, what I know is this, like, I don't, like, I'm not right with God. Like, it externally, ceremonially set me right for God, but internally, my conscience is laden with the rightful guilt of my sin before that holy God we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. No conscience was ever truly cleansed of sin because that wasn't the point of these sacrifices, the author says. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Instead, the point was that the repetitive nature of these sacrifices, he says, was to be a reminder of sins every year. And furthermore, a reminder that no effort you make, no matter how well-intended you are, no matter how much good you seek to do, nothing done by you can ever be enough to save you from your sins. The key point in these first four verses in the reminder of the ineffectiveness of the Old Testament sacrifices is get the point right. Don't do these things. People weren't called to do these things because that is what would save you. The point was to do these things so that you would do it and go, man, I really need a savior. Man, I really am a sinner. Man, God really is a holy one. Man, I really need a messiah. I really need to respond to this by faith because these sacrifices yearly, repeatedly, continually, what they are showing to me is this. There is nothing John Davis can do to save John Davis from John Davis' sin. It just can't happen. I need someone else to do what I cannot. 
do for myself. That's what he is saying was the point of these Old Testament sacrifices. So he's saying to these Hebrew Christians who, remember, are being persecuted for their followership of the Lord Jesus, are thinking about going back to this way of attempting worship God. He says, you're going back to something that's ineffective. So instead of hanging your hope on the ineffectiveness of an Old Testament sacrifice, instead, he says, verses 5 through 10, here's what I want you to cling to. I want you to cling to the effectiveness of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. I want you, in other words, to cling to that which all of the Old Testament stuff was pointing forward to. They were saying, blood of bulls and goats can't save you. No amount of you doing something to try to save yourself is going to do it. What you need is someone who can come along, offer one sacrifice, truly effective, to truly bring that salvation. And he says, look, Starting in verse 5, let me show you how this is effective. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is effective. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, and he's going to make reference to a psalm, Psalm 40. And he's putting Psalm 40, written by King David, he's actually saying this points forward to King Jesus, the Christ who came into the world. When he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In order to drive home the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice, the author turns to Psalm 40, where the quote of this psalm has two purposes. The author is quoting this psalm to drive home two truths to these people so that they would further concretize, further tighten their grip on the once-for-all effective sacrifice of Jesus for sins. The first one was to teach a truth. That was the first promise or the first purpose. He wanted to teach them a truth. You see, the question that he wants them to wrestle with and the question he wants you to wrestle with is this. It's to ask the question, in what does God desire? Have you ever wrestled with that one? Like, what does God truly desire? In what does God truly take pleasure? According to this psalm, God's desire is not in mere obedience to sacrificial rituals, as if God's total aim was for just there to be a bunch of dead animals laying around. No, rather, his great pleasure is in a heart who yearns to do his will, he says. The second purpose is to reveal a need. So he wanted them to teach them a truth about the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice, and then he wanted to reveal a need. You see, the problem is that on our own, the best we can do is just come and sort of participate in this whole system of making offerings to God. The thing in which God ultimately takes no pleasure And what we don't naturally want to do is God's will, the thing that he does actually take pleasure in. On our own, outside of Christ, what we are prone to do is give ourselves to works in the hopes that our works will earn a right standing with God. And outside of Christ, the heart is not prone to come and say, Lord, I've come to do your will. That's not what the heart outside of Christ says. Now, all of this would be big trouble If Psalm 40, if that's all we could say about these verses and revealing these things, but what you need to notice is that Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm that points forward to the Messiah. 
And in the Psalm 40, a messianic psalm, the author tells us that these words written by King David are ultimately about, look at the beginning of verse 5, ultimately about the Christ who came into the world. As our great high priest, Jesus knows what God takes pleasure in, and so Jesus' priesthood would not be about offering animal sacrifices, but guess what it was going to be about? It was going to be about offering his own body, verse 5, a body that was prepared for him. As our great high priest, Jesus came to do the Lord's will, verse 9, and the prophet Isaiah tells us, a question you should ask yourself is this, okay, if Jesus came to do the Lord's will, what was the Lord's will for Jesus? You can find answers to that question all over the place. One of the key answers is in the book of Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah, in that famous Isaiah chapter 53, where the prophet Isaiah is punching forward to what we call the suffering servant, Isaiah says this will be the mentality, the drive of the suffering servant. This is what it's going to be about. So when Jesus came to do the Lord's will, the prophet Isaiah tells us that it was the Lord's will. The Lord's will to what? It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to cause him grief. Who's the him there? The him is the Messiah, the suffering servant to come. So if you were to stand back and say, Yahweh, sovereign Lord, what will be your will for your suffering servant? What will be your will for the Messiah, for the Christ, the one who's going to come and offer himself as the final, full, sin-forgiving sacrifice, what is going to be the heart attitude of this one, this promised one to come? The scriptures say the heart attitude of this one is this. I am going to come, and the delight and the pleasure of my soul is going to be, Lord, what is your will, so I can go and accomplish this will. And Isaiah 53 says the Lord's will was to crush this one. The Lord's will was to bring him grief, but through the obeying of the Lord's will, who is going to crush him and put him to grief, guess what comes out on the back end of that for our good? salvation salvation found in the one who didn't show up and say here's what i'm going to do i'm going to slap some animals on an altar and kill them and we're going to be all good he's going to go tonight i'm the lamb of god and i'm going to climb up on that altar my blood will be poured out and in that crushing and in that grief the good of salvation is going to come isaiah says yet when his life is made an offering for sin That's the language of Hebrews 10. He will have many descendants. What will be the result of this suffering servant doing the will of the Lord, being crushed and being put to grief when his life is laid out on the cross as an offering for sin? Isaiah says, guess what's going to come as a result of that? Many descendants. Many people who will be folded into the kingdom because of this. He will enjoy a long life and the end of verse 10 and Isaiah 53, and the Lord's will shall prosper in his hands. Do you see what he's saying? The one who came to say, I'm going to do your will. Here's my will for you to be an offering for sin. The son walks forward in obedience. The suffering servant walks forward in obedience to that will. And what happens is the will of the Lord prospers in his hand and prospers in such a way that many people come to know salvation. 
You see, as the true one, Lord Jesus, who came to do God's will, Jesus did away with that first Old Testament or that first Old System of animal sacrifices, verse 9, and established a second new system focused on the one-time giving of his body. Now guess what? By God's will, he says in verse 10. Here's the language. By God's will. By God's will accomplished through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, here's what we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt. We have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. By the blood of Jesus, we have been cleansed, in other words. We have been set apart once for all because of that once for all sacrifice of Jesus. So do you see why the author just can't let this go? He's saying before the people, like, you're walking out on this. You're going to go back to an ineffective system, to an ineffective shadow that is pointing forward to the effective reality. Don't bail out on that. Cling to the Christ. This is what the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus accomplished. But he rolls on into verses 11 through 18. Not only that, the author also wants us to see that this once-for-all finished forgiveness of sin is offered by Jesus. So he's still going to hold to the once-for-allness of the sacrifice of Jesus, but now he's going to show us how it is a finished sacrifice and how it's a sacrifice that truly brings that forgiveness of sin. Look starting at verse 11. He writes that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. And at that place of victory, guess what King Jesus is doing? He is waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice how the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus is a finished sacrifice. It's finished. It's done. There's nothing left to be done. In order to prove his point, he begins to draw comparisons between the Old Testament priests and Jesus, our great high priest. Again, remember, he's not introducing new material to us. He is just pressing it forward one more time so that we'd have yet one more opportunity to have our eyes open to this reality and to embrace Jesus alone for salvation. So he says, listen, you guys know the difference. He says where priests, earthly priests, had to stand daily before God because their work was never finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because his work is finished. Remember what we were talking about when he was laying out all the, the implements and the stuff inside the temple? What you notice is that in the temple, in the tabernacle, one thing was missing. There was never a seat in there. And you're like, okay, you know, poor planning. Maybe Jesus, God needed a better interior designer. Like, I don't know. Like, what's the point here? Like, why, why is it a big point that there's no seat in there? It's because of this. At no point in time can an earthly priest pull back that first curtain go into the holy place, and then one time a year, the high priest go into the most holy place, do what needed to be done, and then come out and sit down and go, well, got that over with. Next. He could never do that because there was always a reminder continually every year that the blood of bulls and goats could not Take away my sin. 
At no point in time could a priest offer like that one million and first sacrifice. I'm like, wow, we made it. No, because he'd have to turn around and come back and do that million and second. The difference is Jesus offered one, one, uno, singular sacrifice himself and sat down because his work is finished. Where a priest had to repeat their daily work, their daily work could never take away sins, but guess what? Jesus' finished work actually atoned for sins. And what the author is saying is that this means Jesus' finished work is a victorious work. And from that place of victory, Jesus rules, verse 13. And how does he rule? He rules waiting until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Without a doubt, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus is a finished work. And by this single offering for all time, he says, Jesus has perfected those who are being sanctified. So if you go back up to verse 10... He says, by this will, by God's will, we have been sanctified. You roll down into verse 14, and he says, by this sacrifice of Jesus, once for all, we are being sanctified. And what he is saying, the author, is this, simply this. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross shows that the whole of our salvation, our positional stance before God as holy and right before Him, and that progressive reality of growing more and more like Jesus, the whole enchilada, the entire reality of our salvation, it hinges on the finished work of Jesus. It hinges on nothing else. Nothing else. And then as if that were not enough... He's like, I need to press this just a little bit more. He's like, give me, give me another like five verses here. He's like, I'm going to press this reality a little bit further. And what the author does is he presses the once for allness of Jesus' finished work even further when he tells us that the Holy Spirit was even bearing witness to the reality of Christ's once for all sacrifice all the way back in the Old Testament. The danger might have been for this original audience of Hebrew Christians is this whole like once for all in Jesus kind of, this is like a new thing, right? He's like, no, 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 no. All you got to do is go back to your Old Testament, the Old Testament, which gave you the law with the stipulations for priesthoods and sacrifices and tabernacles and blood woven into that reality was even already the reality that guess what this thing isn't the final deal you need someone who can come and bring the better bring the better bring the better bring the better it's interesting here you get a little side snapshot the doctrine of scripture because if you were he's quoting jeremiah 31 here if you were to ask who wrote jeremiah 31 who wrote it you could say Jeremiah wrote it, right? But what does he also say here? Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this fact. So what you're seeing is that the Holy Spirit was carrying along the prophet Jeremiah when the prophet Jeremiah wrote these realities. So how can we see this already? Well, because when the Spirit led the prophet Jeremiah to say, verses at the bottom there, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law on their hearts. I'm going to write them on their minds. And then listen, I'm not going to remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. These promises made 
by an Old Testament prophet. These promises of once for all forgiveness of sin, for God to say, I will remember their sins no more. That is a forgiveness of sin that is full and final. What these promises are doing is teaching us that in the Messiah, verse 18, truly what he would accomplish is that there would be no need, no longer, for any offering of sin. For God to say, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, means something took place in Jesus the Messiah that finally and fully dealt with sin. Friends, truly, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus is a finished sin-forgiving sacrifice. It's finished. There's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be done. So, beloved, do you see, do you see how this explains why Jesus said what he said on the cross right before he died? Do you remember what Jesus said, what he said right before he died on the cross? What did he say? It is only beginning. It is, well, I tried really hard, but I didn't quite get it done. It is finished. It is finished. John's gospel records that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. They held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit and died. In that moment of seeming defeat, when the world around him was watching a man die on a cross, pinned between two thieves, and he cries out one last time, it is finished, you have to wonder where people going, you know what, I really thought this guy was going to get it done. But like people who get stuff done don't die on a cross. You know that at least because of what happens in Luke 24 when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus are walking with them. It's like, man, don't you know what? We thought this guy was going to get the whole thing done, but he's dead. And Jesus says, don't you know what the law and the prophets have been saying about the Messiah to come? It is all going to be wrapped up in him. So when Jesus is saying it is finished, it wasn't sort of like a, like a last dying squeak of a breath of, you know, I lived a really great life for 33 years and now my life's just finished. Whoops, didn't quite pan out. He's not saying that. When he says it is finished, it wasn't a moment of defeat, but I'm telling you what was going on was victory. Victory. In that single cry on the cross, Jesus was offering, says the Hebrew author, the single sacrifice of his body for sins, and his cry in that moment, it is finished, stands as the signal that there is no longer anything else to be done for the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing to be done. Why? Because the sovereign lamb of God did what needed to be done, and now it is finished. Finished. Not just beginning, finished. In him, 
with nothing else left for me or you to do. Truly, says the, the psalm, the hymn, lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Beloved, when was the last time you've pondered that reality? When was the last time that you pondered the greatness of Christ's once for all finished sin-forgiving sacrifice? When was the last time you just sat and chewed on the fact that when Jesus seconds away from his earthly body experiencing death, he said, it is finished. When was the last time you pondered that in order to better grasp what that means for you? What that means for you? Have you ever stopped and pondered what exactly that means for you? For Jesus to say, my sacrifice as the lamb means it is finished. It is finished. You see, some of us here this morning are sinners in need of a Savior. Sinners in need of a Savior. And for Jesus to say, it is finished, means that there is forgiveness in what Christ has done. I'm telling you, there is real deal forgiveness for you. There is full and final, finished forever forgiveness of sin being offered to you right now this morning because it is finished. There's nothing else for you to do. So come to Jesus and receive this forgiveness. That's the invitation inherent in these verses. Stop your foolish, self-dependent striving. Christ's sin-forgiving work is finished. So come and rest in what Jesus has done and ask him to forgive you of your sin. Heed the invitation of Hebrews chapter 10 and come and rest in what your high priest offers you. Come and rest in verse 17. What does verse 17 say? Verse 17 says, The promise of God, because of the finished work of King Jesus, is this, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Who wants that kind of forgiveness? Sign me up on that list. The invitation is for you this morning. For those here this morning who have never initially made that first step forward to say, Jesus, I need that finished work applied to my account. Because unless you apply that finished work to my account, I will be found having to bear the penalty for my sins and my transgressions before a holy God. But you need to know this morning, you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to bear the due penalty you do deserve for your sin before holy God. You don't have to. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus. Now, in a nutshell, what we could say is that this is the gospel of the cross. Translation, this is the good news of the cross. That's all we've been talking about all morning long is just the good news of the cross. And guess what? The good news of the cross never stops being the good news of the cross because even after we come to trust Jesus and his sin 